My name is Dmitry Osichek. I'm one of the elders here at the church. Welcome to our service this morning. As you, uh, if you have been here before uh, for the past few Sundays, you probably already know. If uh, you have not, we've been going through the Revelation's uh, first three chapters of the book, and we have been studying together uh, the letter or letters that have been written by John, which were a revelation from Jesus Christ to his church. I don't get to do this very often, so I'm really excited, but I'm probably going to get very nervous at one point. So if you hear me speaking Russian, just know that it's Russian. It's not speaking in tongues, okay? Just want to put that to bed, because this is the book of Revelations. <laughs> All right? So um, we've heard from, from the word about the church in Ephesus, and the church in Ephesus was the church that was a good church. However, the church has lost something. It lost its first love. It lost that zeal for the Lord that it had at first. So the church, rebukes, the church is being rebuked by the, by the Lord, and the Lord says, you better wake up and, and get that love back, and get that level back up. So Christ cares for that church. He knows it still has good, has good things going on. However, it's lost a little bit of itself. Then we went on to Smyrna, and Smyrna was a persecuted church. And the, God says to it, I know what's going on. You are about to greatly suffer. But he is encouraging to the church. He knows the tribulation. He knows their poverty. But he says, although you are poor, you are rich. And he says, do not fear. Then the church of Pergamum was the compromising church. It was a good church. However, there were people who were, it says, some who are holding to the teaching of Balaam. And Balaam was basically leading Israel into rebellion and revolt, into sexual immorality, idols, and those sorts of things. But Christ still cares for that church, and he calls it, and he says, repent. Repent. Although you have these bad things going on, Christ's call is, come back to the true teaching. Then we go on to the church at Thyatira, and the church at Thyatira was a corruption-tolerant church. There was a certain person there named Jezebel who was doing all sorts of weird things, all sorts of sinful things, and the church was tolerating it. So Christ is asking the church, his message to the church is, wake up, repent, stop doing what you're doing, get rid of that sin, again, we hear, repent. Then there was a church at Sardis. And the church at Sardis is described as a church that is pretty much dead, with a few people still alive and hanging on. It is the church that Christ is calling and he's saying these very words. He's saying, wake up, church. Wake up. They did have a few people, however. Then we went over the church of Philadelphia. Last Sunday we talked about the church of Philadelphia. And everyone in the Christian world wants to be the church of Philadelphia, right? Because it's the one that had the most going for it. It's the church that is a good church. It's a, a live church. 
Christ is encouraging them to continue and to be continuing in the same way that they were, keep growing in their love towards Christ. And then we come to the church that is called Laodicean. Now, as I was doing the research on this church and just trying to gather as much information as possible, it is a church that was located in a city which was located on the Lycus River, in the Lycus River Valley, which was in Asia Minor, and it is modern Turkey. Um, I'm not going to pronounce the city correct, probably, but it's called Denizli. It is where the city is located right now. The church was located in the river valley. However, they had a problem. The river bed would dry up in the dry season, and they had a big problem with water, and therefore they had to build this whole big aqueduct that brought water from the springs about six miles away from the city. It was quite intricate and quite um, nice for the day. There are still remnants of it today, and uh, we will talk about it a little bit later. It is located 12 miles west of Colossae and about 6 miles south of Hierapolis. And we know about the church at Colossae because there is a whole letter to the Colossians from the Apostle Paul. It was a very wealthy city, a city of great wealth. And parts of it because it was located not on one major route. See, in, back in the day and even today, when your city is located on a major road, there's a lot more chances for doing business. There's a lot more people coming into your city. And the city of Laodicea was not located only on one major route. It was actually located on a crossroad of two major routes, one going east-west and one north and south. So therefore, there were people in the city who were very adapt to the situation, and they were great business people. The three areas of wealth, where wealth came from in the city were, one was banking, which is pretty much self-explanatory. A lot of people coming in, they're doing business, they're traveling. It's quite easy to stop in in the city and do some business and do banking and leave your possessions behind and... Uh, they were very much into the banking industry. The second one was the wool trade. And it was especially a black wool, which was really hard to make for back in the day. So the garment industry was thriving in that day. And it was thriving inside of the city of Laodicea. And this black wool was very profitable to make. Therefore, people were, again, gaining great wealth through doing business in the wool market. The third one was they apparently had a very advanced for the day medical school. And the medical school was advanced in the area of making a solve for your eyes, basically some kind of a cream of that day. And that was very important for the day because Back in those times, medicine was not as advanced as it is today. So anything that would help, it spread like wildfire. So there were many people traveling great distances to come to this city if they had issues with their eyes in order to obtain some of this solve, and they were um, paying great money and going through great lengths because there was no other alternative at that time. Apparently, it was some kind of a clay substance 
that they made, and they put some, some minerals in there. They were able to, uh, to make the salve, and when you had eye irritation, what you would do is you would basically go to this uh, institute, they, were, they would examine you, they would give you this stuff for a certain price, and you would put it, apply it to your eyes, and apparently it helped with irritation of the eyes. So a lot of folks came, and obviously they did their business there, they did their trading there, and they came in droves because there was medicine available for your eyes. Now the city got so rich that history speaks that in 60 AD, it got completely wiped out by an earthquake. Now the Roman Empire was in charge of the place at that time, and they offered money to rebuild the city. But the folks said, no, we don't need your money. We have our own. And trust me, we don't want you to tell us how to build it. So they rebuilt it by themselves. They rebuilt it, in fact, so much better that the city was described as three times as glorious as the previous one. And they did not take a penny from anyone. They used their own money, and they took very great pride in that because, imagine that, if you didn't have any insurance today and the fire wiped out your house, or, I'm sorry, if you had your house, and the insurance company came and they said, well, here's your check, and you'd be like, don't worry about it. I'm just going to go ahead and take care of it myself. And you built three times as much without taking any money from the insurance company. And this is kind of what they did. They were very proud of themselves for doing that. The last thing I want to note about this city before we get into the letter is that they had a big Jewish population. Obviously, uh, Jews were dispersed in that area. And the reason we know this is because they had a big synagogue in there. And historians say that at one point, the city put a moratorium on exporting gold out of that city. Well, however, at that time, uh, the Jewish men who were um, of age, they had to pay a temple tax. And I'm not going to go into the details of it, but they were trying to export and take 19 pounds of gold over to the city of Jerusalem, and that got confiscated. So that tells us if we, if we were to divvy it up, there was about 7,000 grown adult males who were Jewish in the city of Laodicea. They were there for business, they were there for the good life, they were there because they were prospering. Now Apostle Paul, I'm sorry, Apostle John, he's writing and he's saying these things. Let's open up to verse 14 and read it together. Revelations 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of of the creation of God says this. As we have seen in the previous six letters, Christ is starting the introduction by going over some of his attributes. He's presenting himself to the church in a certain light. And he is obviously presenting himself in the church, to the church in Laodicea by these three things. He calls himself the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, and the origin or the beginning of all creation. Now, we are very familiar with the word amen. Amen is the declaration of affirmation. It is the concluding word in the prayer. 
And a lot of people in the secular world, they also use it and they say, amen to that. We've heard that a thousand times before. Now the root of the Hebrew word for the word amen is something that is fixed, something that is firm, something that is immovable, irrevocable, something that is final. So Christ calls himself the amen. He is the amen for many different reasons. He is the fulfillment of all God's prophecies. He is the final word. If we read in Matthew 24, verse 35, Matthew 24, verse 35, it says this, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Pretty final, isn't it? Christ is reassuring that his word will not go unfulfilled. And in Hebrews 13, verse 8, again, it says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He is the Amen. He is the final word. He will have the final word at the consummation of this whole entire world. Why is that so important? Why was that so important for the church to hear? I believe it is important for us to hear also today. Because the authority of God, the authority of Christ especially, is being challenged every single day. His authority is being put under question. People do not want to adhere to a final authority today. We are, we are a free nation. We are a free world. More and more the world is becoming more and more liberal in their thinking. Being liberal is not something that is necessarily political. Being liberal is something that speaks to my own authority, the way I see it, the way I understand it. So Christ is reminding us today that he is the amen, he is the final word, it is going to be as he says it is going to be. So what is Christ trying to tell the church? He's saying you can be certain that what I'm about to say is going to happen exactly as I say it is going to happen. Then he goes on to call himself the faithful and the true witness. A witness is usually a picture of a courtroom, right? Somebody that is witnessing on the behalf of the court. And he is talking about something that has happened. Now Christ is called the faithful witness. Faithful witness is a person who is loyal. He is fully committed to the cause and truthful. What can be better than the truth, right? He is better than video evidence in the courtroom, brothers and sisters. He is the truth. And I know this verse has been read over and over again, but it's such a critical, crucial verse for us to hear. John 14, 6. We should all know it by heart now. John 14, 6 says what? It says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Christ is saying to the church, what I'm about to tell you is the truth, so you better listen up. And the last one, I believe, in this series of introductions to the church is the most important one. He is the beginning of the creation of God. Now, 
As many people wrongly believe today, Christ is not a created being. He is part of the Godhead. He is part of the Trinity. He is the creator. We need to know this. We need to make sure that we understand and truly believe this in our hearts. If we look in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, it speaks to Christ being the beginning. It says this, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Yet for us there is only one God, the Father, from whom are all things. And we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him, by whom are all things, meaning that Christ is the origin of all things. John 1.10, it says this, He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, and yet the world did not know him. So the world came into being through Jesus Christ, being underlined over and over in the Word of God. And even in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, it says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Again, He wasn't born at creation. He was the one who made the creation. Creation was made through him. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Why is this so important? Well, because God needs to be understood correctly out of his word. We better not miss those points. He is the amen. He is the true and faithful witness. He is the creator, not a creation. Why is the reason for this intro? Well, I believe that Christ is diagnosing the problem with the church at Laodicea. If we were to look back in Colossians chapter 2, Apostle Paul, writing to Colossians, he's expressing concern for Colossian church and also for the church in Laodicea. And as we already heard, the church in Colossae was about 10 or 12 miles away from the church in Laodicea, so they were very close. So it is very, um, it would be common sense for us to say that they were related churches, especially in the old world. So in Colossae, someone went down to Laodicea, they preached the gospel, and the church started to organize. If we read Colossians chapter 2, Apostle Paul is expressing his concern. It says this in verses 1 and 2, Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have in your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and that they would attain to all the wealth that comes from the assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself. Apostle Paul is concerned for the Colossians and the Laodiceans, fully knowing that they are misunderstanding the person of Christ. Any church that does not have a clear 
precise biblical teaching of the person of Jesus Christ is going to have major issues. Any church that denies the deity of Christ is not a church. Any church that adds on to who Christ is or takes away from who Christ is, as it is spoken in the Bible, is going to pay the dire consequences of that error. We see in today's Christianity that Christ is being explained many different ways. He is sometimes the magic wand. We call ourselves a Christian nation today. We are all Christians, right? You go around and you ask people, a lot of people will say, I'm a Christian. But how do they pursue their Christian faith? The only time they pursue it, there's a Russian saying, actually it's Ukrainian, I'm mixing my languages now. It says, Yak trevoha to the boha, meaning when there's trouble, you run to the Lord. Unfortunately, a lot of Christian people today use Christ as the magic wand. They don't need him for anything else except to help them out when they're in trouble. Now, he is being also described as one of many ways into heaven. A lot of times, preachers, teachers, and people in the church, they treat Christ as buddy-buddy. Oh, he's my friend. It's all great. But is he your Lord? Wow. That's not such a comfortable relationship when you call somebody Lord because you have to submit to him. A lot of people see Christ as a man who was a good man, a noble man from the past. Some see him as a guru um, who was teaching about better living, bettering yourself in some say, way, shape, or form. And a lot of people, unfortunately, see Christ as the one who is able to give you health and wealth in this particular life, and they don't want Christ for anything else. A lot of people in the Christian church today around the world are being preached what we call a cruise ship gospel. Get on. It's a blast. Everything's great. You don't have to do anything else. That is what was happening in the church in Laodicea. If we continue reading in the text, we get to the... So that was the address. I'm trying to follow Brad's, um, Brad's uh, plan for the, for, the, for the sermon. Now we get to the aim. What is Christ trying to say to the church? We get to verse 15. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were cold or hot. I know your deeds. Christ gets right to the point. See, we can fake it to other people. We can put on a good show. I know I can. Sometimes I'm a good showman. But Christ doesn't care about our show. Christ doesn't care about our godly or goodly desires. He doesn't care about our pious thoughts. He doesn't care about what we say. He knows our deeds. There's no way to hide ourselves from the piercing sight of Christ. And he sees this church, his eyes pierce right through that big picture that they're trying to paint. And he sees and he says, you're neither hot nor cold. Now who are the hot people? 
I'm hot right now, but it's not what it's talking about. <laughs> it is talking about being zealous for Christ. These are the saved people who love God and they live their life for the Lord. These are the people that God commends and he says to them, you're on the right track. Who are the cold? The cold are the callous people who don't even care. They are the ones who say, not for me. I'll talk to you about this later. I'm sure we've met all these people before. But who are the lukewarm? Why is Christ calling this church the lukewarm? It is a reference to that aqueduct. Christ is talking, and he is talking to the church directly, and he is using familiar things to explain to them their condition. It is the aqueduct that when the water was running through it, and when it finally came into the city, the water was so bad that if a traveler was coming out from a different city, and he just wanted to quench his thirst, he would grab that water and put it in his mouth. But it was so disgusting, he would spit it right back out. I've had experience like that once. I've, I've debated whether to share this or not. But when I was a kid, growing up, I remember playing outside. It was a hot summer day. And my sister, one of my sisters and myself, we had a pretty uh, special relationships, uh, relationship when we were young. And uh, love my sister dearly. But I run into the house, and I see that there is a, what appears to be like a cup of Soda, something that has, looks kind of like a ginger ale sitting on the table. Now, pop, cola, whatever, soda, was a very rare occurrence in our household. So I'm excited. I'm thinking, Mom bought some pop, and there's some on the table. Well, I asked my sister. I said, what is that? And she says, oh, just go ahead and drink it. So I grab it, and I start to chug it. And I realized that my mom was frying some fish and she poured the oil back into the cup because she didn't want to throw it down the sink. You better believe I spit it right out of my mouth. And I grabbed the rag that my mom was just washing the floor with and I started to wipe my mouth. It was an interesting experience, but I was again ready for this. I remember that. Spit it out of my mouth. That is Christ's warning. It was lukewarm, it was disgusting, it was something that I couldn't hold in my mouth for more than a second. I vomited it right back out. And Christ is saying, you are lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold, I am going to spit you out of my mouth, verse 16. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now we could say, why is Christ calling these people lukewarm? Who are these people? These were the people who I like to call pretend Christians. They were a congregation of people who were there for a certain reason, but the reason was not Christ alone. These were the people who were in the church because maybe a certain status was given to those who were in the church. They were looking for something to gain out of that relationship. But they were not there for Christ himself. And this is the diagnosis that Christ gives them. He says, you are lukewarm, and I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You see, the other reference is because Colossae 
It had the cold springs of water. Hierapolis, which we learned about earlier, it had the hot springs. However, the water in Laodicea was really disgusting and unbearable. So was the church. And Christ calling these people lukewarm is the diagnosis of their condition and the condition of their heart. Then we come to the second part of the problem. The problem with the church was described in verse 17. It says, Because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have no need of anything. I have become rich. It's a self-diagnosis of a person who is very prideful. I have become rich. I don't believe that Christ was only talking about their financial state here. I believe that Christ was talking about what they thought of themselves as a church. They decided to say that we are rich. We have everything. All our programs are hitting on all cylinders. We're good. We have a choir. We have best worship teams. We have everything going on. Our financial state of the church is awesome. We're doing all sorts of missionary works. We're going out. We're reaching out. These people have become arrogant in their worship. They thought that God really needed them. They thought that their money and their status in the church was really important to God. But God continues on speaking to them, and he says, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. This church had a problem, and the problem was they were a prideful bunch. They decided that God really needed them. They were something special. That's why God is hitting on all three of their sources of wealth. He is wanting them to understand one thing. He says, you think you're rich, but you are broke. You have nothing to offer to God. You say that you did it all yourself. You failed to honor the creator of all things. You think and you say you have need of nothing, but you are about to lose your soul. That is the warning to the church in Laodicea. But Christ doesn't leave it there. He being the merciful, awesome God that we know, continues speaking to the church, to the church who is completely full of themselves, to the people who don't want to hear a rebuke, to the people to whom it is really hard to understand what their true state looks like. He says this in verse 18, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I solve to apply to your eyes so that you may see. What does Christ offer? He doesn't say, because you are in the state that you are, I'm done with you. He is warning them that it could come. But he is merciful, and he continues calling these people 
And he says, I will give you gold. What is gold? Gold is not the money that we are used to or those people were used to. Gold is the eternal riches of heaven. What are the white garments? The white garments are the righteousness of Christ bestowed upon the saints who fall in faith on Christ. What is Isol? The Spirit of God which can open your spiritual eyes to see not only who Christ is, but also the condition of your own soul. If we look in Isaiah 55, there's a wonderful, wonderful passage that talks about what Christ offers to people. It says this, Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3. You there, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without cost. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread, and your wages what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ears and come to me. Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Christ is calling. And guess what? Trusting him doesn't cost us anything but bringing our own wretched self to the throne of grace and saying, I have no money. I am broke. I am broken. I am unrepairable. But the only chance and the only choice that I have for salvation is you, Christ. He's offering it for free. Christ doesn't want anything back from us except come as you are, admit, and believe. He is calling the church in Laodicea. He is offering the same thing to the church today. And verse 19 says, Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. In this case, we hear again, the familiar call to repent. Every single church that had troubles was asked and called to repent. Listen and hear the call, Christ says. Repent. Be zealous. Stop being in the state of sleep. Wake up and be zealous. Start caring. Stop putting yourself and lulling yourself to sleep by your wealth, your health, your awesome position, the great possessions that you have. Quit doing it. Quit thinking that if we have everything figured out on the surface, we're good. This is what Christ is telling the church. He's pointing out the problems, and he's saying, don't just listen and not do anything about it. He's calling the church to repent. He still cares for these people who are not caring for him. In verse 20, we see again, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. I'm not speaking this about our church, but this is the imagery. Christ is standing 
by the door off of 84th Street while we are inside in here and he's knocking. That is the image here. He is outside of the church knocking on the door and he's saying, someone, please, open the door. Come. Take what I'm offering and I can do great things inside of your church. Now I believe that our church is not in this state. And I praise God after being here for nine years, I hear the Word of God being preached faithfully from this pulpit. I see a lot of people who love Christ, who are zealous for Him, who are continuing to do the work and proclaim Christ faithfully. And I'm glad that we are doing this together. I'm glad that we are caring for Christ, that our pastors care enough for the Word of God and care so much for it as to present it in the correct light. And here is the promise of the assurance. The one who comes, who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat with my father on his throne. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. Promise of eternal reward and eternal salvation. We are going to see Christ. We are going to be with Him. We are going to rule with Him. That is His promise to the church that overcomes. The church that answers the call. Now, what are we to do with all of this? How are we to live? What are we to believe? How are we to behave after hearing this message to the church in Laodicea? A few very important takeaways. As I said before, we mirror the church in Laodicea as the church, collective church in the world today. Especially here in the United States. I come from a very different country, very different upbringing. The things that we gain here, possession-wise, are great. I never imagined having as much as we have today. Sometimes I look at my family, I look at my wife, especially talking to my parents. And my father says, never in my wildest dreams, he, he likes to say this phrase, he says, if you were to ask me 30 years ago, or tell me 30 years ago that you're going to live in this country and you're going to have all of these things, I would have never believed. But here we are. And most of you folks here, you've grown up in this. Our country is experiencing still, to this day, a great blessing of the Lord. But the Lord calls his people to be faithful. He calls his people and he says, you better have the right Christology. You better understand who Christ is and believe in him as the eternal Son of God, as the only Messiah and Savior of the world. And that true knowledge leads us to awe of our God, to a true obedience and to endurance in our faith. How are we to behave? 
after having the right view of Christ, we also have to have the right view of ourselves. Christ is the Savior. He is the Messiah. He is the only way to heaven. What about ourselves? We're not special people. We are the broken sinners in need of a Savior. Christ is calling us to understand also who we are. We are unable to save ourselves. We better fall on the promises of Christ to attain salvation. What are we to do? I would implore you, I would call everyone. If you know anybody in your family, your friends, your co-workers who are in need of a gospel, take the time to share it with them. Take the time to care for their soul. If you know a person who is stuck, I might say this very unpopular thing right now, in a Catholic church, in the name it and claim it, or whoever lives rebelliously but calls himself a Christian, please take the time to care for their soul like God is caring for this church in Laodicea. He knows that those people didn't care for him, but he doesn't give up. He continues calling them to, the, to himself. We as Christians who know Christ need to use every opportunity to reason and lovingly remind those who need to hear it about the truth of Christ and his promises. He says to those who overcome, I will give the right to sit with me on the throne. What an awesome promise. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, that in our church today, and for many years now, our pastors have preached the gospel truthfully. Even those unpopular, unpopular things that your word says, the culture doesn't like them, Lord. But you said them, and they are true. Lord, you reveal to us today, even through your word, that you are the amen, you are the true and the faithful witness, you are the creator. Lord, let us rest in those truths. Let us understand those truths. Let us fall upon those truths. And Father, as you cared for this church in Laodicea that truly and honestly didn't care about you, they cared about their possessions, their positions. They thought that they were saving themselves. They were great. They had nothing else that needed to be done. Lord, you still cared for them. You called them to yourself. And you call each sinner today. Father, I pray that you would give us who are alive and who are hot for you. God, give us wisdom to speak your word to those who need to hear it. May your church be on fire for you. May this church continue growing in faith, in steadfastness, and in love towards you, Lord. May we love one another and love the world that needs to hear your gospel because they're perishing. All things that are here said today, Lord, may be to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed. Thank you.